The following audio is from Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. More information about Redeemer is available online at RedeemerRVA.org. First reading this morning is from Psalm 62. You can find it on page 479. And this is probably a good moment to say that if you don't have a Bible, please keep the one in front of you as a gift from us. Psalm 62. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rest my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love for you will render to a man according to his work. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to to God. God. Thank you, Claire. And friends, now let's stand together for the reading of the gospel. If you still have the Bible in hand, if you can flip over a few pages to the book of Luke, chapter 5, you'll find that on page 861. We're going to read just two very short verses, 15 and 16. Friends, this is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. But now, even more, the report about him, him being Jesus, went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve as a pastor here, truly. Uh, Now, by way of orientation, we are in the season of ordinary time, and I know that's familiar to some of you and probably new and strange to others of you, Uh, but ordinary, ordinary time is this part of the church calendar where followers of Jesus around the world and throughout history give sustained attention to answer the question. What does it mean for us to make our life with Christ in the simple, mundane ebb and flow of our normal days? And to help us answer that question, every summer, our parish, Redeemer, returns to the Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible, in which every possible human emotion and experience is directed towards God in prayer. And today we're going to examine Psalm 62, which Claire read just a few moments ago. To begin, let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So I'm on a plane from San Francisco to Seattle. There's 10 minutes left in the flight. We're kind of starting to descend. And the worst possible thing happens. Well, not the worst. The plane didn't crash. The second worst possible thing happens. I finished the book I was reading, and I didn't have another book, which meant I had to spend 10 agonizingly painful minutes doing absolutely nothing as the plane, as the plane came in for a landing. And um, what I learned in that moment is that I actually have this peculiar and very rare disease. It's not contagious. You won't catch it from me. It's called abibliophobia. Now, bibliophobia is the fear of reading books. Abibliophobia is the fear of being stuck somewhere without having a book to read. This is, pray for me, this is what I suffer from. Um, and so I've got abibliophobia, and we're coming into land, and I have to spend these 10 terrible minutes. As soon as we get to the airport, I immediately rush, this is true, I immediately rush to a bookstore and buy a book so that on my connecting flight, I will have something to read and won't have to suffer there in silence. Now, what made this whole experience uh, even more frustrating was I was traveling with two other people, and I had the middle seat, and they were sitting on either side of me, and you know what they did during the entire flight? Actually, both of our flights, you know what they did? Nothing. No iPad, no laptop. No phone, no podcasts, nothing to listen to, nothing to watch, no book to read. They didn't even touch the in-flight magazine. They did nothing. They just sat there like sociopaths, just staring off into the distance. At some point, I think they dozed a little bit. They were able to be, they had something I didn't have. They were able to be content with just silence. Whereas the silence for me just felt incredibly painful. There's something wrong with me. I crave something, anything to fill the void. I need to be entertained, someone to talk to, something to listen to, something to do, to write or read or watch or listen to. And whether it's recorded or filmed or typed, I'm like addicted to a certain level of noise and I find silence almost painful. I think it is undeniably true that our world is becoming an increasingly noisy place to live, both for our exterior and for our interior lives. Uh, just listen to this. In, in the year 2022, our year right now, the average person is exposed to 4,000 to 10,000 advertisements a day. And if you think to yourself right now, that feels a bit high. I don't think that's my reality. That's because advertisements have become so normal, you don't even recognize them as being there anymore. It's almost like the air you breathe and the water in which you swim. The average adult looks at a screen seven hours a day, and the average adult checks their phone 344 unique times per day. That's on average once every four minutes, which means at this point, on average, I caught one of you just watch, looking at your phone, and you just quickly put it down, and you're feeling a little awkward right now. Gotcha. Um, I was reading earlier this week uh, this article by Ronald Rollheiser, and he has this to say. It's not that you and I have anything against God or against depth or against spirituality. We, we like these things. It's just that we're habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad. We're more distracted than non-spiritual. We're more interested in movie theater or sports stadiums or shopping malls or the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness 
are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. And then this line was the one that got me. We, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Now, what was so interesting about this article is that he wrote it in 1999, before the digital revolution in 2007, when the iPhone infected, I mean, was released uh, on the world, and before Facebook went from a college thing to like an everybody thing. And I wonder what he would think of us today. T.S. Eliot wrote, where shall the world be found? Where will the word resound? Not here, there's not enough silence. What I wanna do is I wanna take us through what the scriptures in the Bible have to say about noise and silence because there is actually a thread you can trace all the way through the Bible from beginning to end. Did you know that the story of the Bible begins in silence? It is. Before creation kicks off, there is quiet. There is stillness. There is silence. And then into that silence, God speaks. And then after the Lord finishes creation, then there is rest. There is a return to silence. So you might imagine the creation narrative is bracketed by silence. There's the pregnant silence in the beginning before the dawning of the world. And then there's the consummated silence of rest after the creation is finished. But then after that creation, bracketed by silence, a different kind of speech, a different kind of sound, a different kind of thing enters the story. Noise. Incessant, unabated noise. Human beings accusing one another, betraying one another. Cities filled with violent words and violent deeds. The Tower of Babel is raised as a collective human defiance against God. And the judgment of God against humanity's arrogance is the chaos of noise. And that chaotic noise in this world has continued to increase in volume and pitch year after year, century after century, and it shows absolutely no signs of slowing down or decreasing, does it? But into that noisy world comes a God who creates out of silence and who rests in silence and then becomes human in human flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. And Jesus inaugurates his ministry with 40 days alone in silence, in the desert, this pregnant silence anticipating a new creative work. And before Jesus chose his 12 disciples, he spent an entire night alone in silence in the desert hills. And when he received grief, grievous news about the death of his cousin, John the Baptist, what did he do? He retreated to a lonely place to spend time in silence. In fact, after feeding the 5,000, this miraculous, uh, incredible miracle that Jesus does, he makes his disciples leave, he dismisses the crowd, and then what does he do? He goes to the hills by himself. He retreats to silence. And actually, when he sends the 12 disciples out to do ministry of preaching and healing, when they come back and return from that, he says, come away by yourselves to a lonely place. In other words, you've been engaged in a lot of noise, now come have some silence. And before his arrest and crucifixion, Jesus sought the solitude of the Garden of Gethsemane. He needed a time of quiet before the noise of his torture and then his final death on the cross. In fact, silence, we might say, is a regular, was a regular practice in the life of Jesus. The creative, restful silence of God is embodied in the life of Christ. Now, the story keeps going throughout the Bible, and the story actually culminates and ends in the new creation where the noise of this world ceases. In the future new creation, are we supposed to be silent all the time? No, let's not make that mistake. There's laughter and song and feasting in the future new creation that God has in store for his people, but there's also times of restful silence where humanity and God are at peace with one another and so are able to be quiet together. 
If you imagine an older couple who has spent 50 plus years in marriage and they really are on good terms still with one another, they are able to do what with each other? Be quiet together to simply enjoy the silence with one another. And that is a bit of the image we have of God and humanity in the new creation. So at peace, so at rest, they are able to simply be quiet and just enjoy each other's presence. And it's into that story of noise and silence that we have our text today from Psalm 62. Now, you might find it useful to have the text open in front of you. You don't have to, but you can if you like. So if you like, pull out a Bible, go back to Psalm 62 so you can have the text right there. Um, Psalm 62 was written by King David, and I know some people are vaguely familiar with the story and life of King David, but let me just kind of catch us up here. David grew up in the fields as a shepherd, which means that solitude and silence were a regular part of his childhood. Just think about it. Hours and hours, days and days, weeks and weeks, years of his childhood growing up experience were spent alone, outdoors, in solitude and silence. But as an adult, at the time of the writing of this psalm, he is the king of Israel in the capital city of Jerusalem. Is that a quiet place? It is not. It is a noisy place, the noise of politics and economics and at times even war. So David writes this psalm, this kind of poetic hymn, in which he retreats within himself to a place of solitude and silence, a place that he has already cultivated in his childhood. The main idea of Psalm 62 is not complicated, it's this, and it's repeated twice. For God alone my soul waits in silence. Now, how do we know that's the main idea of Psalm 62? There's a lot of other ideas and words here in the psalm. Well, we know it because it is repeated, and repetition in the Hebrew language means something different than repetition in the English language. In the English, we repeat things because somebody might have missed what we said earlier or wasn't paying attention. In Hebrew, you repeat things in order to put them in all caps and bold with exclamation points. In other words, it's the main idea. It draws your attention to it. The Hebrew logic is, why say it once when you can say it twice? So, the first time this phrase is said is in verse 1. The second time is in verse 5. The first time it is descriptive. The second time it is prescriptive. Look, verse 1, my soul waits in silence. Verse 5, O my soul, comma, wait in silence. The first describes something that's already happening inside of himself. The second, he is commanding or reminding himself to do something, which he has evidently stopped doing in between verses one and five. And from this, we might imagine the author at times finds himself able to wait in silence, and at other times he has to remind himself or recenter himself on that silence. Have you ever had the experience of praying, praying silently, And then you realize that for the past five minutes, your mind has actually wandered to any number of things and you have to kind of go back and reset. Isn't it a comfort to know that that happened to King David as well? First, he describes something, then he has to remind himself to go back to it. Now, for our purposes today, we're gonna hone in on just one word, silence. And what kind of silence are we talking about? Are we talking about simply not speaking or simply a lack of noise? Both of those are good, by the way. It's good not to talk sometimes. It's also good to be in places where there's no noise. But that's not really the silence that we mean. There's an author named Paul Goodman who in 1972 wrote a book that unfortunately is now out of print called Speaking and Language. And in it, he describes nine kinds of silence, okay? So listen, kind number one, there is a dumb silence of slumber or apathy. 
silence where you're just not paying attention. Number two, there is a sober silence that goes along with a solemn animal face, the silence of a creature. Number three, there's the fertile silence of awareness, pasturing the soul where new thoughts emerge. Kind number four, there is the alive silence of alert perception, ready to speak, kind of at attention. Number five, there's the musical silence that involves being absorbed in an activity. You're washing the dishes and you don't even realize you've been quiet for 20 whole minutes. There's the silence of listening to another person speak, paying attention to the flow of their thought and argument. There's number seven, the noisy silence of resentment and self-recrimination where you are sullen and angry within yourself. Number eight, there's the baffled silence of confusion where you just don't know what's going on. And then number nine, there's the silence of peaceful accord with other persons or communion with the cosmos, according to John, uh, excuse me, Paul Goodman. Now, it's a long list. And all those different kinds of silence, what kind is David talking about in Psalm 62? Well, in a sense, kind of, all of them. Because if you've ever tried to deliberately quiet yourself, both outside and inside, then you will be familiar with, the, with at least the experience of there being a whole jumbled, tangled bar, ball of yarn mess within yourself of thoughts and feelings and emotions and stories and impulses and questions and distractions. So in a sense, all of these things are happening within us when we go to God in silence. But actually none of them by themselves or even all of them taken together are what David is describing. Instead, he is describing what we might call a waiting silence awaiting silence, which is where we stop asserting ourselves and we relinquish our attempts at control to God. Let me say that one more time. Waiting silence is where we stop asserting ourselves and we relinquish our attempts at control to God. That's the kind of silence that the author is describing. Now, the question that guides the rest of our conversation in the sermon this morning is simply, how do you cultivate that kind of waiting silence? And to do that, we have to examine our inner lives in which we find the quiet self and the noisy self, okay? So let's look, let's look inside, do a little bit of inner work, and let's talk about the, the quiet self and the noisy self. Let's, let's start with the positive. Let's talk about the quiet self. This opening line, for God alone my soul waits in silence. There is a purposed focus here. What is the purpose? Where is the focus? Not too complicated. It's on God. God is the purpose and the focus of the silence. And this is a key qualifier because some of you, many of you, are actually introverts and you've been waiting and hoping for a sermon like this. In fact, when you opened up your liturgy and you saw the title of today's sermon, you were like, yes, I'm glad I came today. Finally, I'm so glad he's not preaching on community. <laughs> Hang on. There's a danger here. The danger is that you might end up using the practice of silence to get away from people that you find draining. And when you think about silence and solitude, what you actually conjure up in your mind is this image of you curling up with a good book and a blanket on a rainy day with a cup of tea and some lo-fi music on a record player in the background, all of which sounds lovely, by the way. Please invite me. Um, but that's not what we're talking about. Uh, there's an author named John Mark Comer who specifically calls this out and writes, for introverts, this turns silence into spiritual justification for narcissism rather than a spiritual discipline to become a person of love. So if, that, if your desire to be alone and quiet is actually a desire to escape other people that you are called to love, 
That's not a spiritual discipline. That's just called being selfish. Now, listen if you can. Richard Foster, in his book Celebration of Discipline, which to my knowledge is still the best book written on the spiritual disciplines, writes, simply refraining from talking without a heart listening to God is not silence. So in other words, the kind of silence we're talking about here is purposed and focused. It is directed towards God, which is different from mindfulness, right? A lot of us might be familiar with mindfulness, which has become really in the last 10 years, like sort of in vogue. It's like very sexy right now. Um, But mindfulness is not purposed or focused on God. It's rather purposed and focused on the self. And I'm not saying everything about mindfulness is bad. It's not. There's a lot of good benefits there. It's certainly much healthier than noise, but it is not the same thing as the Christian spiritual discipline of silence and solitude. Now, are we just kind of giving introverts a hard time here, or is there something to say to extroverts too? There is. I'm not off the hook either. Extroverts perhaps don't feel the need for silence. If you're like me, you're kind of more of a community person, more sermon series on community. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls us out. He says, let the one who cannot be alone beware of community. Someone who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. In other words, extroverts, you and I need silence, even when we don't think we need it. So silence is not a need-based practice. In other words, it's not just a thing that's available for you whenever you feel like you need some of it. It is essential. We might even use an aggressive word like mandatory, okay? So extroverts in the room, me included, silence is mandatory for us. Now, silence is not only focused on God, it's also patient. There is a waiting. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. I kind of wish that the author David had written something more like, for God alone, my soul prays, or for God, my soul labors, or for God, my soul hopes, because those are all active words that are engaged. Waits feels so very passive. And I think it's because waiting may very well be the most helpless position a human being can be in. I mean, infants, think about it. Infants have to wait for everything, don't they? They have to wait to be held. They have to wait to be fed, wait to have their diaper chains. Infants have no agency beyond what? Crying or shrieking, right? Which is why infants cry so much. It's the only, it's because they don't want to wait. As we grow up, we don't want to wait any more than a baby does. We just have learned how to have some agency so we don't have to shriek about it all the time, right? The psalmist is describing this silence as patient waiting. Um, I'm terrible at this. You should never go grocery shopping with me because I am terrible at choosing which line to check out in. I'm like unusually bad at this. Um, Invariably, I choose the line with the person who wants to make a complicated debit withdrawal from their account and the cashier doesn't have correct change and they have to go get the manager. And I have to text my wife and say, I'm sorry, I'll be 45 minutes late coming home from Kroger because I picked the wrong line. Y'all, ever since 2007, when the iPhone first was, you know, set loose, um, the primary impact it has had on the human race has been to eliminate waiting and therefore eliminate the need for patience. You don't have to wait to get your computer to check your email. You don't have to wait to go to the library to look up something. You can Google it right here. You don't have to wait to know things. You don't have to wait in line. You can take your consciousness away from your body right? And cast it anywhere in the known universe so that you don't have to wait for the cashier to find the manager to get the correct change for the weirdo who is making debit withdrawals at Kroger. Guys, I just feel like we should talk about this a little bit longer. It's very frustrating. (laughs) And yet, we are called to wait in silence. Eugene Peterson writes, while waiting, 
I discover that there is more reality outside of me than there is inside of me. While waiting, I begin to pray, first by attempting to manipulate the will of God, but I end by putting myself in a position to be moved by his will. In other words, that experience of waiting does something to us in prayer. It takes us from a place of trying to control God to a place of allowing ourselves to be directed by God. That's what waiting does. So waiting is focused on God alone. It's, it's patient. It's waiting for God to act. It's also confident. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. So what kind of confidence is this? It's the confidence that you are safe and secure with God. Can other things be shaken? Oh, yes. This is not a promise that other stuff isn't going to be shaken. Can your health be shaken? Yep. Your relationships? Yes. Your money? Yes. Your reputation? Yes. There's an old story of a medieval monk who was being unjustly accused of certain offenses by his brothers in the monastery. And one day he looked out of his window and he saw a very strange sight. He saw a dog biting and tearing a rug that had been washed and hung up on a line to dry. And as he watched this dog tear apart this rug, he sensed the Lord speaking to his mind and his heart saying, this is what I'm doing to your reputation. But if you will trust me, you will not have to worry about the opinions of other people. That's what it means to be unshakable. It means when your life is like the rug in the dog's mouth, being bitten and torn to shreds, and yet you're still okay. You're in pain, yes. Do you wish it would stop? Yes. But on the inside, in that secret inner place where you have communion with God, where you wait in silence for God, you're okay. You're confident, you're unshakable. So let's summarize here. That's the quiet self that has cultivated this inner silence that is focused on God. It's patiently waiting for God to speak or to act, and it's confident that in him you are safe and secure. The quiet self is focused and patient and confident. What a beautiful triad. Wouldn't you love for those three words to describe you, right? What if somebody else described you that way? Oh, what is that person like? They're focused and patient and confident. That's the quiet self. But the problem is, for you and I, often when we look inside of ourselves, we actually don't find the quiet self, do we? We find the noisy self, or at least I do. The noisy self is like the film negative, the exact opposite of the quiet self. Instead of focused, it's distracted. Instead of patient, it's impatient. Instead of confident, it's insecure. It's distracted, impatient, and insecure. It's distracted. Some of you might have had a problem earlier when I was quoting all of these statistics about attention, and you might have been thinking to yourself, like, Dan, I realize this is a problem for most people, but you don't know me. I am unusually good at multitasking, so I'm fine, right? Um, You are not good at multitasking, okay? Do you know why? Because multitasking isn't real. It's not a thing. You can't be good at something that's not real. It's true. (laughs) That should be obvious, right? The experience that we call multitasking is actually your brain flipping very quickly from one thing to another, to another, to another, to another, focused on nothing. Sustained attention is absolutely essential for all important creative work. This is true. Whether you're building a relationship, or creating art, or making music, or writing, or reading, or studying, or problem solving, or cultivating a relationship with God. Sustained attention is absolutely essential if you want to move anything beyond the status quo. And human beings are very good at maintaining the status quo. We can learn things very quickly and then put that action on autopilot, right? 
That's why you can drive somewhere, like to church, and not remember the trip, right? Because you got good at it, so you put it on autopilot. It's why um, I can very efficiently respond to a work email, read a text, silence a work notification, watch a Netflix show, and drink a glass of wine, all at the same time while on date night with my wife, right? Pray for Rachel. It's a terrible experience. Um, But, you know, when we do these things, when we attempt to multitask, which we can't do in these ways, we actually asphyxiate our relationships, especially our most important relationship, which is the one with God. And in, in response to this problem, you know what most of us end up doing? We either give in to the noise and just surrender and sort of say, this is the world I live in, what do you want me to do? Or we use other noise to drown out the first kind of noise. In other words, we fight fire with fire. We fight noise with noise. Um, There's like a noisy Christian-esque version of the secularized pagan noise. It's like using a white noise machine to drown out the noise of sirens in the city. It's like layers of layers upon noise. Um, And what I mean is, is like, if you're hearing all this, you're thinking, okay, he's got a point. I'm gonna stop listening to all those podcasts. I'm gonna listen to Christian podcasts. Or I'm gonna not have music all the time in the background, I'm gonna find a Christian playlist on Spotify. Or I'm not gonna watch that show on Netflix, I'm gonna watch The Chosen or something like that. Y'all, it's just a different kind of noise. Dallas Willard writes, most of us have never experienced silence and we do not even know that we do not know what it is. You are more likely to hear God in silence than you are on your Christian Spotify playlist. And because of this, our distraction, we become impatient. We allow ourselves to become conditioned into near constant distraction, and therefore our patience, rather than growing and developing like an exercised muscle, has atrophied. And so waiting, just waiting, feels almost like torture. You set aside a bit of time to read the Bible or to pray or to meditate, and what happens? Nothing happens, right? Nothing happens for minutes and minutes on end. How long till you give up? If you knew that God would reveal himself after an hour, would you wait? If you knew that God would reveal himself after a day, would you wait? What about a week? Would you wait? What if you spent an hour in silence every day for a year before God revealed himself? Would you wait? This is why I love fishing. That's a transition nobody saw coming. Um, But listen, if you can. This is why I love fishing. And if you'll allow me to be totally and shamelessly self-congratulatory here, this is why the Lord Jesus chose fishermen as uh, his followers and the Sea of Galilee as his setting for much of his ministry. Because fishing involves so much what? Waiting. You have to contend with boredom if you're going to be a successful fisher. In a not-too-dissimilar way, you have to contend with boredom if you want a relationship with God. So what are we talking about? We're talking about the noisy self distracted rather than focused, impatient rather than patient, and then finally insecure rather than confident. This is the bad fruit borne out by the noisy self. Richard Foster writes, one reason we can hardly bear to remain silent is that it makes us feel so very helpless. You see, you and I want to be in control of our relationship with God. (laughs) This is so frustrating. The first thing we experience when we wait for God in silence is that God is not a genie that can be conjured up. He's not a divine butler you can call upon. And so in silence, what I realize and discover again and again is that I'm not in charge of my relationship with God. And that is terrifyingly uncomfortable. 
Psalm 62 calls us to become a quiet self. But when I look inside myself, what I actually find is a noisy self. And so we end up fearing silence. And we choose noise over silence because we're afraid of it. And even when we push through that fear and we end up seeking silence, we find it painful. It's painful to wait. And even when we persevere through the fear and through the pain, we discover a different kind of fear because we find God is frighteningly uncontrollable and will not respond to our whims. This is why Emily Dickinson wrote this poem years ago, Silence is all we dread. There's ransom in a voice, but silence is infinity, himself having not a face. In other words, there is something terrifying about silence because it reminds us of infinity and himself, God, the one who is silent and does not speak to us. Now, listen if you are able. Into the silence that we are all so afraid of and that we avoid and that we have to persevere in, there is a voice that is speaking. Jesus is God's word spoken into a noisy world, and Jesus therefore meets us in the silence. In Jesus, God, contrary to Emily Dickinson's poem, does have a face. And in Jesus, God does in fact speak to us. And the word that God speaks to us in Jesus is not a horrifying word of judgment or a crippling word of shame or a devastating word of disappointment, but a word of love. In Jesus, God speaks a word of love into the silence. Jesus is God's word of love spoken to you. In Jesus, God's word of love meets you in the silence, which is why Henry Nouwen describes silence like this. Solitude and silence is not a private therapeutic place, but rather the place of conversion. Why? Because it's Jesus who meets you in the silence. And Jesus was not only the human being who perfectly embodied the inner silence of focus and patience and confidence, all these things we're talking about, but rather who sent his spirit to dwell within us. And so, if you follow the logic, your inner silence is, contrary to our intuition, not a solitary place, but rather a communal practice. It is the place where you commune with the spirit of Jesus. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to end by just naming a few ways that we can begin to embody and practice this no matter who you are or what your personality, introvert, extrovert disposition is or what stage of life you're in, whether you're single or have roommates or have young kids in the house or you're an empty nester or, you're, um, or you live alone. Who can actually do this? Everybody can do this because all of us have And if I'm wrong about this, please come talk to me afterwards. But I think I would wager all of us have potential little moments of silence throughout the day. I call them potential because for most of us, they are not silent yet, but they could be. Early mornings before little children wake up, the morning cup of coffee before work, silence in your car when you're stuck in traffic, silence as you walk from your apartment. My personal favorite, the the neighborhood night walk around 9.15 p.m., after kids are in bed. These little moments are often lost or wasted on podcasts or phone calls or texts or emails or Spotify. You could redeem those little moments by making them moments of silent communion. And in addition to redeeming those small moments, you might also think a little bit more big picture. You might even think about the physical space that you inhabit in your own home, whether it's an apartment you rent or a house you own or a vacation home on the river that you have. Think about your physical space. Think about designating part of that physical space 
as the place in which you are alone and quiet, where you can wait for God in the silence. Now, some of us have homes big enough in which we could designate like a room or a closet or something to this. Others of us might need to get a little bit creative. I have a friend who lives in an apartment in a really big city and has multiple roommates, and their solution to finding a place of solitude and silence has actually been to designate a chair in the living room as like the silent chair. Meaning, if you go to that place and you're sitting there, the apartment rule is you can't talk to somebody if they're sitting there. And that has been their creative solution to finding a place of solitude and silence, even in the midst of much noise. But you could also do other things. Some of you are building or redesigning homes right now. And I would ask you, if a new kitchen backsplash is worth the expense, why not a small room where you could be quiet and alone with God? Which one of these do you think will make you happier in the long run? A new master bathroom with two sinks instead of one, or a space to regularly commune with your creator? And if you don't have money for that, that's fine. Then designate a place in your home where you can be alone with God. And when you travel out of town, what if when you were gone and your house is empty, what if you offered your home as a space to somebody else in this parish so that they could have a place to go and to be alone and quiet? Y'all, my hope is that in the coming days and weeks and months and years and really for the rest of our lives, spending regular time in silence and solitude will become not a rare practice for spiritual giants, but a normal practice for every member of this church. And when we do this together, we will find increased focus, a heightened focus and awareness of God, increased patience, and hopefully decreased impulsivity, which we all need, right? And also an increased humble confidence not an arrogance, we're not trying to be prideful or arrogant as an individuals or as a church, but rather humbly confident, unshakable. Uh, earlier this week, actually on Friday afternoon, um, I set aside some time to be quiet and to be still, and in that time I was reflecting on my experience on the airplane and my pathetic inability to endure 10 whole minutes of not having a book to read as the plane landed. And so I set aside some time to be quiet and to be still and to be silent and to wait for God. And I didn't even need a book, which almost feels wrong to say, but it was good. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I pray that you would give us the grace to enjoy silence with you. And I pray that you would also give us the mercy to find little moments of redeemed silence throughout our week, this week, so that we might wait for you alone. In your name we pray. Amen.